This morning's reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God, Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord. For the next few weeks, um, leading up into the, the summer holidays, we're going to spend some time thinking about why church? What is the purpose of church? Why has God created church? Who are we and what is our purpose and what should we be doing? Now that sounds as if it's a little bit basic. Why church? But actually, if we don't stop and go back to basics sometimes, we can forget some of the reasons that God has chosen to have his church here on earth. There's a risk that we sometimes think that we are our church rather than God's church. Because the only reason we exist is to carry out God's mission here on earth. So the church was set up for a reason, for a purpose, and there's all sorts of things that we need to think about as we wonder how we are continuing in the mission that he has called us to. And how specifically here in Wanish in 2018, God is calling us to be church for this time in this place. So, a few Sundays where we'll just begin to to take a bird's eye view and look at what God is saying and then maybe question, well, what about that? What do we do about that? What is God saying to us? In the 1940s, there was an Archbishop of Canterbury called Archbishop Temple and he wrote a lot. And one of the things he's most famous for saying is this. He says, The church is the only society which exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. The church is the only society which exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. Now, I've been thinking a little bit about that over the weekend, thinking, what on earth does that mean? Because there's a lot of organisations that try to recruit members in. I'm, and Paul and our boys, are members of the National Trust. And the National Trust does a lot of recruiting. And it is looking to bring people in but it's looking to bring people into an organisation with a particular purpose. And that purpose is to preserve historical buildings. And they do really well at appealing to its members. As a member, you get your magazine sent to you. You get your card. You can walk past the ticket booth and just show your card and walk in. You can park for free as long as you've got your sticker on your windscreen window. And as you drive around, you spot other National Trust members. You think, aha, there's another member. But there's a sense in which there's a particular purpose and it's inward looking. Yes, they look out to recruit, but they look out to recruit 
in. I'm also a member of Guildford Lido, and I just want to say I went yesterday. It opened yesterday. 10 degrees air temperature. The water was 24, and there was steam rising. But I'm a member of Guildford Lido, which means on the hottest day in the summer, I don't have to join the end of the queue. I've got my card, and I can just swipe in, go through the turnstile, and in I go. I get sent emails Again, it's encouraging me to be part of something that's quite inward-looking. Yes, they want more people to join, so it does look outwards, but it's in order to bring in. Well, you might say the church is exactly the same. We look outwards in order to bring in. But actually, that's not what Paul says. That is not what Paul is saying here. In verse 10, in the reading that we have just had, it says here that God's intent was through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is one of the most powerful statements in the New Testament that says why the church exists. It is saying that the church should be offering a model a picture to all, and particularly to governments, to leaders, it should be offering that model of God's wisdom. The church is here to demonstrate God's kingdom here on earth. What it means for us to be operating under God's rule rather than somebody else's rule. And we do that by modelling, by demonstrating, by the way we live. Paul hasn't always been in that place. Paul was on the other side for a long time. Paul started as somebody who was very anti-Jesus. He was a a devout Jew. He had a, a position of authority. And he couldn't understand why this group of people were suddenly saying there was a new way to understand faith. There was a new way to understand who God was. And he really struggled and rejected this newfangled religion. So much so that he was persecuting those new Christians, those early Christians. And it's understandable, Paul was Jewish. All his life he'd been brought up to believe this is who God is and this is how he operates. And suddenly people were saying, no, Jesus is the Son of God and he's come to show us a new way. And now he's died and is risen and continues to rule. And all that changed on the road to Damascus, that Damascus moment when Paul fell upon his knees and had that vision of Jesus and he met him face to face. And at that point he realised that everything he had known in the past was now changing. That Jesus was real. That Jesus was alive. And that God's kingdom here on earth looked different. And he became one of the first major proclaimers of this new Christian faith. And he talks about that in verse 8. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, he knew where he'd come from. He wasn't proud. He wasn't boasting. He knew he was a sinner. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Paul knows that it is his mission 
And the mission of everybody who has met Jesus, who has met Christ, to share that treasure with others. He knows how rich that treasure is inside. He knows his life has been transformed in an amazingly positive way. He needs Jesus in his life. And he looks at that as a treasure. And he says, and now my mission is to share that treasure with other people. And so he looks outside, not to bring in, but to take out. To take that treasure out. And he goes to the people around him. He goes on journeys across the sea. He ends up in prison. He is shipwrecked. All sorts of things happen. But he is so passionate about sharing the treasure that he knows inside with those who do not yet know it. And he establishes groups of people who meet together, not for the sakes of themselves, but in order that they too have some strength and some power together to share with others the treasure that they know. And they didn't bring in, but they planted out and out and out. So as each person who has met Jesus, God says, I'm asking you to do something. Don't keep this treasure to yourself, but let others know the deep riches of God's love in your life. That's not to be held tight ourselves, but to share. And as a group of believers gather together, you model what it means to live under God's rule. And you look out to share the treasure that we have. What a massive challenge that is. What an incredible challenge. And we talk about this a lot, but this is why I want us to to come back to basics. To think again about what this challenge is. Because it's so easy for us to forget our purpose. And to actually focus on ourselves with a little bit of outreach added on to our ministries. But our whole reason for existing as church is for the sake of others. Don't hear me wrong here. Being together is vitally important. And God encourages us, and we'll read through other letters in the New Testament where the early believers are encouraged to meet together. Meeting together is hugely important. Coming together to worship God is what we're called to do. And discipleship, where we help one another in our own understanding of who God is, of who Jesus is, of supporting one another in love and care, is part of demonstrating what it means to live under God's rule. So yes, we need to think about what, who we are and how we live with one another. But if all our focus is on that, and we forget our major purpose, which is to demonstrate how we're living and to share that treasure with those who don't yet know it, we're actually only doing half the job. And yet that's such a a challenge to us because life is so busy. And actually sometimes the model that we present isn't the model that the world needs to see. If you were to find in a newspaper any mention of the church, it's very rarely about what good the church is doing. Now, that might be the fault of the the editors of the the newspapers because that doesn't sell newspapers. What it's more likely to talk about is infighting, of disagreement, of divisions. And so the world believes that the church is angry with itself, can't get on with one another, 
causes division. Is that the model that we want the world to see? Actually, we should be thinking much more about how can we show that the love that we have received from God is the love that we share amongst ourselves and is the love that people look in and say, what's amazing, I want to be part of that. The world needs to see a church that cares and loves for one another and isn't causing major divisions. There's also a challenge as we think about how we think about reaching out because worship and discipleship is so important to us, so part of our heritage and who we are, that sometimes it can feel a little bit vulnerable to think, oh my goodness me, what if going out and telling people means that things might have to change? And that can feel threatening because we love what we have and we honour what we have and we must never, ever forget our deep heritage. And in a church like this, we're remembering back to 1100 where there has been worship in this place for such a long time and that's something to value and be proud of but actually over those years if there had not been a sense of sharing what God had given we wouldn't be here today so we need to have that sometimes difficult conversations about what does it mean to to preserve who we are and yet be relevant to those who don't yet know us and don't understand. Some of you have heard my um, picture of cribs. And I'll say it again, because actually it's been really powerful to me. For the last two or three years, it's sort of a lot of my thinking has been around this. I was hit very, very strongly one Christmas about two beautiful cribs that we have, and they are both beautiful. One is a beautiful Victorian crib that's china, and we set it up and we put it behind the rail there. Because we want people to come and look at it, but we don't really want people to touch it because something might be broken and we want to protect it, and that's really important. So we have a crib that sits there that is beautiful. We also have a Playmobil crib that sits out in the porch that is beautiful, but can be played with because it's plastic. If you drop it, it's not going to break. And what happens is that the children, and sometimes the adults, come. In fact, often it's more adults than children, and move the figures around. And actually, the Christmas story gets a little bit warped as we end up with the angel on top of a tree or Mary in the crib or whatever it might be. And to me, that was pictures of how we can choose to be as church. We can choose to be this beautiful thing that is so precious that we don't, we're worried about anybody messing with it. And we say, come into our church Have a look at what is beautiful, but don't touch it. Take it as it is and don't question it. Or we can say, do you know what? I'm not even there. My faith isn't all neat and tidy and sorted out. And we can be honest about that and say, yes, we have some rich treasure. We have rich treasure that we want to share. But actually, even in my head, it's not all sorted. And sometimes my Christmas story theology is a bit warped and a bit messed up or challenged one year in a way that it hasn't challenged me before. And together we're a Playmobil crib, where actually we can probe and ask and question and move things around. And my longing is that we're a church that's a Playmobil crib. Both are equally beautiful. Both are honouring our deep faith, the foundations on which we stand, and the beauty of what we have. 
But one says, come in and take us as we are. And if you don't like it, sorry, there's not a place for you. There's another that says, we're all on a journey. We're all on a journey of discovery. And I'm on that journey. And you coming in can actually help me. I am more challenged by people who have grown up without faith, often. They ask the most probing questions. Then sometimes in my safe little group where we all know the answer is Jesus, regardless of the question. Paul says we are here to share the treasure. The challenge is how we share that treasure. Another challenge that we have is prayer. Because we cannot be the church that God wants us to be without praying. Without recognizing that at the heart of who we are, We need to turn to God and say to him, who would you have us be? What would you have us do? And again, in the busyness of life, and I'm the first to put my hand up, prayer is squeezed out. Somebody once said to me many, many years ago, you're so fortunate, you're you're paid to pray. If only that were true. I have to confess, that prayer is hard, it is a challenge. And yet if I don't fall on my knees and say, God, you do your work in me, I'm at risk of becoming that model that is set and stuck and please don't touch it, I've got everything sorted and I just can't cope with anything being messed up because my life is so busy over here. At the end of May, we've got an opportunity to come together in prayer with the rest of the world in an initiative called Thy Kingdom Come. We want to pray all the time. But actually, there are ten days being set aside where we are being encouraged to pray. It might only be for five minutes a day. But we are being encouraged to pray that God's kingdom would come. And to be encouraged to pray for those who do not yet know the riches that Paul talks about. I'd love us to Fully embrace that. We're going to have some tents outside in the graveyard. Three prayer stations in tents. So we don't have to worry about opening up the church. You can come and pray anytime, 24 hours a day, because there's no building to have to walk into. There are going to be places of prayer for 10 days. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to have available booklets that give you something to pray for every day for those 10 days. For you to use at home, they're pocket-sized You can take them wherever you are. It's a tool to help you pray. And at the end, on the 20th of May, there's going to be a huge celebration at Guildford Cathedral between 4 and 8, where there's opportunities to pray and there are opportunities to worship, to celebrate the end of a whole global 10 days of prayer. I'd love you to come and join us there. To inspire you, we're going to watch a video. And this is the Archbishop of Canterbury interviewing Pete Gregg. Pete Gregg oversees the 24-7 prayer movement. And it's actually based in Guildford, not very far away from us. And he has established a global movement of prayer. But he's the first to admit that prayer is a challenge. So let's, hopefully this will work. Thanks, Steve. I do believe that when we pray for the kingdom of Jesus to, to come that his rule and reign does come. And um, we often see the good news of that. We, we, we see the, the blessings, the answers to prayer, the encouragements. But sometimes you're right, it can be really tricky, can't it? We can wrestle with 
the fact that we want God to airlift us out of our problems and he more often parachutes in and joins us in the midst of them. And so the world's mm-hmm. full of problems and we try to work out how, what does the rule and reign of Jesus look like when he's a servant king? When he has all the authority in the world but doesn't seem to use his power in the way that our world systems use power. So, um, yeah, I, I, I believe in... Uh, miracles. I believe that things change when we pray for the kingdom to come. But um, I suppose the greatest miracle is the presence of Jesus with us in the midst of whatever we're going through. But what do you say to people when, you know, they get to the sort of psalmist in Psalm 88 of just the bleakest, most hopeless depression? So you've got people who are struggling to pray this prayer and they're thinking, the whole world's praying this prayer and they're believing it and they've all got these great expectations. What's the Spirit saying to them? I think, I, think I, I see prayer as about the asking and not just the answering. And when we went through our hardest times, I found that I couldn't help but pray. I mean, I went through a really embarrassing time in my life when I tried to be an atheist for a while and found out I was terrible at atheism because I kept talking to God about the fact that he didn't exist and wondering who I was talking to. And so I think the human, and all the latest sort of research shows people do pray. People, especially in crises. Um, and so I think for people to gather at a time where our world has got significant problems, politically, economically, socially, culturally, and so on, and cry out to God is, is, is incredibly, um, it's not just a meaningful thing to do, it's a very natural thing for people to, 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 to do um, in, in the midst of any kind of crisis. And I think people appreciate the honesty of someone like, like, like you who's very honest about the struggles and the pain and how it's not easy and yet maintains faith within that. So when we're praying, thy kingdom come, and we've got people in mind, um, what are the key things you would say to people as they pray that prayer you know you've got a bunch of folk um, perhaps somewhere overseas in an area where they're being persecuted and they're just gritting their teeth and thinking I don't know but we're going to pray this we're going to join in this week or you've got people and you'll have been to places like this some you know some parts of England where it's just really hard going. The church is small, the building is large. And you just feel, we must be on the losing side here. What do you say to them? Either of those groups. Well, the first thing is, how wonderful to come together as part of something bigger. One of the great things about liking you come is we actually see, we feel that we are part of a two billion strong revolutionary army. Mm-hmm. Wherever you go in the world, we, we, we are conspiring together in the name of Jesus against injustice, against oppression, uh, and seeking to bind up the broken hearts. And so we get a little snapshot of that with Thy Kingdom Come, all these people coming together. And especially, I mean, I actually find the most moving stories from Thy Kingdom Come in previous years have been that the tiny little rural churches that maybe managed to do 24-1 and they're in shock that, that they prayed all night and all day. It's the most wonderful encouragement and they know that they're part of this great um, worldwide momentum. 
Um, and I think the second thing is, is, is that when we pray for the kingdom to come, we have to remember that that is all about Jesus. And so it's about his death and it's about his resurrection. And so, of course, there, there, there's, there's the power of answered prayer, the things we long to see in our world, in our families, in our workplaces. But there is also that aspect of prayer that is identifying with the cross and the suffering of Christ, who is the God who comes and identifies with us in our pain and our struggle. And so, so this is lament and it's intercession, it's petition, it's spiritual warfare, all happening as part of a global uh, movement. So that is a wonderful thing. We can only be the church that God calls us to be if we are rooted in prayer and invite Jesus to shape us and to model us. But prayer is a challenge. One of the places that I find it easiest to pray is when I jump onto an aeroplane. Not a great flyer, better than I was, but it's very easy at that moment of the engines revving up to say, Lord, please help me. Adam's a pilot. I hope he prays that quite a lot. My trust is in people like Adam. But I've invited Adam just to come and share something about how he has looked at prayer in his life and some of the struggles and some of the ways in which he's been able to think about how and where to pray. Adam, thank you. David, that's the most exciting time <laughs> when the engine's revving up. <laughs> uh, morning, everyone. Uh, it's nice to see you. Um, I grew up in the 90s. I did all my growing up in the 1990s. Uh, take you back, Spice Girls, uh, Backstreet Boys, Boyzone. If you're in church circles, it's kind of like the tail end of the Graham Kendrick era. Um, someone called Matt Redman was becoming a household name. And uh, someplace else, someone called Tim Hughes was uh, just discovering their vocal cords. Um, I was in the Sunday school um, and we used to sing a song, Prayer is Like a Telephone. Does anyone remember that? Yeah. Prayer is Like a Telephone, just pick it up and talk to Jesus. That perplexed me slightly as a kid because uh, from what I understood of talking on the telephone, there was always someone there to speak back to you. And that didn't necessarily marry up with my experience of prayer. Um, when I was a little bit older, perhaps as a teenager, uh, I didn't have the privilege of being part of a youth group as such, uh, but I was told it's all about having a quiet time. Okay? It was time to dial down, quieten down, and almost zone out of the real world, and that's when you'd really find God. Well, as a teenager, as you might imagine, that didn't really resonate. I wanted to be a part of what was going on in the world, not have to remove myself from it to find God. And that was essentially my experience of prayer um, until I was challenged at university that it could be something really quite different. Um, I met all sorts of people uh, through church and, and other groups um, who would pray as though God was in the room with them. They would have a conversation with God about the everyday stuff. And what's more, it seemed that God seemed to answer their prayers. And they almost expected it, which was incredible. Some even stayed up all night to pray. We've talked about 24-7 already um, this morning. And that was something I got, became a part of. And I lapped it up. It was absolutely exhilarating. And at that time, it was so foundational and transformational. Uh, but you've heard the analogy before. You take a hot coal out of the fire, and it quickly cools. And that was my experience um, so often. And I'm sure that's been your experience too especially so in this modern 21st century world where life is so hurried, so fast-paced, so high-tempo. 
prayer quickly becomes a very low priority. Bill Hybels, a famous pastor in the States, talks about something called prayer time. The idea being that you find a comfortable chair, and in that chair for 15 minutes a day, you just give yourself the space to be with God and be with God alone. And for me, that's something that's helped so much in recent times, and I've got a chair where I find I can just be with him. Pete Gregg, who we've just seen in the video, says something along very similar lines. He says, set yourself a time and a place and just turn up. You know, half the battle with prayer often is just turning up. God will meet us wherever we are, whatever the time, wherever we're at. But half the battle for us is that we quickly become distracted. If only we would just turn up. So for me, my chair isn't the armchair in the lounge. It's not the sofa. It's not even the chair at the kitchen table. It's the chair in my car. I've got 40 minutes drive to work every day, and I use that time uh, to to be with God. And I will use that time however I want to. I might sing, I might pray, I might listen to a podcast, I might shout out. Some days I even cry. But for me, that has become a special place where I know I can meet with God. Personally, I also find praying with others just really helpful. It's why I love our home group. If, if you're new to church, you know, we've got home groups here and I'm part of a group of perhaps a dozen other guys in, in the village here and we meet every week. And a real highlight of a Tuesday evening for me is that time to pray together. As we've just heard, it's important that we're reminded that we're part of something much bigger. And uh, we as a home group now have shared stories which we've moved through together. We have shared stories of God moving amongst us and he's answered our prayers. But but prayer still has its challenges, and uh, during the last six months or so, um, personally I've perhaps had more reasons to doubt the credentials of prayer uh, than any other time in my life before. And it's tough, it's really tough. You end up asking those difficult questions. God, what on earth are you up to? Why, Why this time? Why now? What are you doing? I'm usually someone who reads life very much in black and white, but I realise as time goes on that I have more and more questions than ever before and life perhaps is uh, lived out in shades of grey. And it's in seasons like this that time very much has to, that prayer has to become um, something of a choice. If I'm honest, there are days where it's the last thing that I want to try and engage with, um, but I've witnessed the power of prayer to the extent so much now in my life that I know that I'd be foolish not to pray. A friend recently sent me a written liturgical prayer to use at the start of each day, and I found that so incredibly helpful. Um, Half past three in the morning, when the rest of you all tucked up in bed, I'm up getting ready for work, and I've literally been on my knees in our kitchen, praying through this prayer. Sometimes praying's a lot easier when you don't actually have to come up with the words yourself. Just one more thought to share, if you don't mind me being really honest with you. something else which has really shaped how I pray and that's a perspective about 18 months ago I was in my chair, I was in my car driving to work and I was listening to a particular song um, and this song was all about what it will one day mean to live out the rest of our days in heaven and to essentially come home and in that moment I absolutely broke absolutely broke God's presence in my car with me that moment was so tangible and so real and overwhelming as he reminded me that our time on this earth is so fleeting and a precursor to that time when we will live out the rest of our days face to face with him in heaven. Uh, Just to read out a verse from that song for you. 
when we arrive at eternity's shore, where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we'll enter in as the wedding bells ring. Your bride will come together and we'll sing. I can remember what it was like the day that I got married. I can remember what it was like seeing Sarah walk down the aisle. And um, if you're married, you've now got, you've no doubt got very similar experiences and memories too. And in that moment, God reminded me that that's exactly how he feels about me, how he feels about you, and about all of us. One day we will all walk down that aisle into heaven, and he will meet us, embrace us, and we'll be his forever. I wonder when you last thought about heaven. We get so serious, don't we? We strive for one thing after another, ambition, success, a comfortable lifestyle, and at a later stage in life, we worry about our children's success, comfort, and lifestyle. And when we feel we're not getting it, we rush to seize control. And I wonder if sometimes seizing control is the greatest enemy to our prayer. One day we'll all be in heaven, and all we're going to do is worship him. And I don't know if that resonates with you in any way at all. Uh, but that was a really powerful experience for me that totally shifted my, experience, my perspective on how I pray this side of heaven. I think there's a risk that sometimes as Christians we get to a place where we know an awful lot about him, but do we really know him? Yes, I want to live a full life, but when I get to heaven, I want him to know me as well. So there you go, just four things which have helped me to pray. Number one, finding a comfy chair. Number two, sharing in the stories of others. Number three, sometimes it becomes a choice. And number four, keeping a perspective on what it's all for.